The Rays Radio Network proudly presents This Week in Rays Baseball. Here's your host, Neil Solons. Thanks very much for joining us. Still no cuts in Rays camp as we record this, but certainly plenty to touch on. For the podcast today, uh, in a moment, you'll hear from Mark Topkin of the Tampa Bay Times. Uh, We're going to talk some defensive metrics with another Mark, that being Mark Simon of Sports Info Solutions, and we're going to focus on the Rays there. He's got a great new book out with a couple of partners of his, John Dewan and Brian Reef, and we're going to talk defensive metrics, again, focusing on the Rays. We're also going to talk with Joey Wendell, but not about his defense, but some changes he's making on the offensive end. And a couple of pitchers are going to join us who I think could have an impact on the Rays at some point this year. Uh, Those being lefty Josh Fleming, uh, who had a really good appearance against the Braves this week, and John Curtis, who uh, Kyle Snyder has talked up in terms of how sharp he has looked so far this spring. And I'd have to concur with that. We'll start with Mark Topkin of the Tampa Bay Times. Topper, I know that the Rays, at least at this point, have not made uh, any cuts, but uh, it has been an interesting week or so. Are you worried, Neil? I I think I'm okay. I don't know. I did talk to, uh, you know, the commander the other day. Um, it, it's been a really interesting camp. I mean, there's been a lot of stuff that has n- isn't really you would consider like on-field baseball stuff. I mean, we've dealt and written and talked to people about the wildfires. Uh, we talked to Kevin Padlow about his medical situation the other day. Uh, I wrote a story the other day about one of the race players whose wife is the re-election spokesperson for Donald Trump. I mean, there's been a lot of kind of different things going on. Uh, in addition to just who's going to make the team and who's looking good and the ball's coming out free and easy. And you just went as deep into politics as Orville go on this podcast. And and there are a lot of interesting stories. Uh, on the field, I would say probably the most, I don't know if I would say even concerning, is the fact that, you know, Blake Snell may be behind everybody else and we're kind of waiting to see how things go the next several weeks. I, I think in all fairness, you have to say it's concerning only because Blake Snell is one of the Rays' best pitchers. And any time, especially a starting pitcher schedule is disrupted for any type of injury, it has to be a concern. I mean, these guys are creatures of habit. They're creatures of schedule. Kyle Snyder, who's one of the best pitching coaches in baseball, and I, you know, I know people have said that about him many times, you know, they have, they've mapped this all out. It's all set up to staying on a certain schedule. And when you have an injury like Blake Snell did, he said his elbow felt super sore. It was on the spot where he had the bone chips removed previously last July. It has to be a concern. I mean, he may only be set back a week or two, uh, but he's going to miss the start of the season. I think that's inevitable. Now, you know, that could be a subjective way to look at it. If he starts the fifth or sixth game, He's not necessarily missing the start of the season, but he's also not starting the game he was supposed to, which we would assume, if not opening day, is going to be game two. Yeah, I think that would be a fair assessment. I think the the good is the Rays do have the depth, and Brendan McKay pitching tomorrow on Friday, as we record this on Thursday, um, is a sign that they have a pretty good option if he gets stretched out. Yeah, I mean, they have some depth for sure, and, and that's part of you know building this team this year. I think we've all seen it in a number of ways, even maybe more so on the position side where they've, they've kind of doubled up and even tripled up at some positions. But, yes, if Blake Snell's not ready and they need someone to pitch in those first five games, and then they do have an off day after game one too, so they could even manipulate that further. But Brendan McKay would obviously be a possibility. Trevor Richards would be a possibility. Those are the two uh, that come to mind the most. We could certainly see an opener-type situation. Um, Jalen Beeks would be another possibility. So, I, you know, they have options. I mean, obviously none are Blake Snell. Maybe one day Brendan McKay will be Blake Snell. But I think they have a way to cover it. And especially, here's the other thing, Neil. I mean, a starting pitcher, 30, 32 starts, maybe 33 these days, although it's a little bit more rare. 
If Blake Snell misses one or even two at the front end and pitches the rest of the season healthy, the Rays would sign up for that right now. So there's really not that big of an issue if that's how it goes. And at this point, you know, still three weeks actually as we record this from opening day, um, we really don't have a lot of clarity in, on some of the battles because the three-catcher situation in terms of who joins Mike Zanino, Zanino Kevin Cash has said it probably comes down to the wire, right? And the, the bullpen battle is probably no closer on that either. It's like a three-man radio booth, the three backup catchers, and we know how sometimes that unfolds. You know, I, I do think it's going to come down to the end. I mean, contractually is going to be impacted a little bit. Mikey Perez is on the 40-man roster, uh, being that Chris Herman and Kevin Smith both have big experience. Uh, but they're on non-roster deals, so I don't think either one has a spring training out clause, but they have certain things that during the season could come up and impact uh, their roster status. So that's part of it, the handedness. I mean, if Mike, you have Mike Zanino as your main guy, as a right-handed hitter, so you'd think it would make sense to pair him with a left-handed hitter, so maybe that gives Mikey Perez or Chris Herman an advantage. Kevin Smith, a little bit of power, though, does really well against lefties, even though he and Zanino are the same hand. Maybe you have some matchups where you think, boy, Kevin Smith would really be the right guy. He's a big target. His defense maybe isn't as refined as the other two. So there's lots of different ways to look at that. But I don't think unless there's an injury or, you know, the old ubiquitous, unless there's a trade, I don't think we'll have an answer on this to the last week. And the bullpen battles, same thing. I mean, Aaron Loop is, is a non-roster guy who I know they like, but, again, would require making some room on the 40-man. Yeah, and this is a 40-man roster that's pretty thick, so I don't think that you know there's an obvious spot or two. Now, they could make a trade. They're still a little thick in middle infielders, obviously, as we've talked about all spring. But Aaron Loops pitched his way into consideration. There's a couple other guys who've looked really sharp, too. I mean, DJ Snelton is one. Uh, John Curtis is a guy that Kyle Snyder's mentioned to us several times. So there's some other guys. But as far as you know, actually making the big league team right at the start of the season, to me, Aaron Loops, the one guy who may have pitched his way into that conversation. Uh, I think going into this, you could make a case, depending on the construction of the roster, whether it was going to be Fairbanks or Kittredge. Uh, maybe both, but Fairbanks does have options, so that would certainly put things in Kittredge's advantage. The fact that Kittredge is more of a multi-inning guy, whereas Fairbanks probably more of a one-inning guy. Uh, nobody can really be considered less than a one-inning guy anymore because the new rule comes into play. We're going to start seeing that next week where you have to pitch to three batters, and I think that applies to radio guys too, by the way. We'll see about that. And while it's uh, kind of in the long term, um, in the big picture, one of the other stories this week was Brent Honeywell getting back off the mound. And while that doesn't figure into April, it could figure into the latter portion of the season for sure. Yeah, and look, I think anyone uh, who has followed Brent Honeywell knows you know, how precocious and confident and cocky he was when he first came to the Rays. Remember the first day when he signed, he was down on the field doing impressions of people and uh, – very good pitcher. He's, he's had a string of injuries, uh, two severe ones. Obviously, the Tommy John surgery, then coming back from that, fractures the bone in his elbow, an issue that not many pitchers have had a lot of success coming back from. But to this point, all the signs are good. He's been throwing off the mound. I mean, the velocity and the movement on the pitches still has to come. I don't think we'll see him during this camp pitching to batters or anything like that. But, you know, there's a schedule, and maybe it's too aggressive, maybe not, where he'll be pitching in minor league games maybe by the end of April. And, you know, after a couple, three weeks, you know, and then he, he goes to Durham and starts pitching in a regular uh, rotation there if and when the Rays do need help. I mean, I don't think they're going to be shy once he's healthy about bringing him up if they can because you get to a certain point where, you know, this is, this is what's happened and, you, you know, you want to maximize the opportunity you have with the guy. The one hard part, though, about all that is is we saw with guys like, Jose De Leon last year and Anthony Bonda, that first year back, and he's not back technically from Tommy John surgery, but he's missed two years of competition. It may take a little while just to really get feel for the baseball and that comfort level. Yeah, he hasn't pitched in a game since the end of the 2017 season. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, I think it was a September 2017 playoff game for Durham, maybe. 
that Brent Honeywell last pitched in a game that actually mattered. Now he's pitching some simulated games, things like that. But you know that level of competition, we hear that all the time from the players. That you know everything that the training staff sets up is fine, but when you're actually in a game, often when they say when the lights are on, but there's fans in the stand, there's an umpire, there's batters for a different team. You know, there's that adrenaline, there's that surge, and you know sometimes that works to the player's advantage. Come back from injury, sometimes it can work to his detriment because he gets too excited. And in the in the near term, obviously Brent's a little further along. You know, the Rays are trying to figure out also the position player side of things, and part of it is whether Yoshi can play the field at multiple spots. And I think so far he's kind of checked all the boxes in terms of the third base and left field. He's looked pretty pretty good in terms of the hands. I think he's looked very good. I mean, obviously, none of what we've seen so far down here is what you would consider game speed. And, um, you know, we haven't seen him play on turf, obviously. We haven't seen him play in front of large crowds. Does any of that impact what he's done? I mean, he has some experience. We looked it up, what, 45 or 50 games at third base last year for Yokohama. And then he had a game earlier in his career, a year earlier in his career, where he played like 87 or 88 games at third. So he's done it before. He doesn't look out of place. And,. Be frank about it. I mean, it's not like the other player who's penciled in to play a lot of third base for the Rays, uh, Yanni Diaz, is a gold glove candidate as it is. So if Yoshi can stand there at third base and make all the plays, all the routine plays, I think the Rays would be very happy with that. And, you know, how they're going to split this up is even more fascinating because does it become a straight platoon if they're happy with his defense? You know, does Yandy Diaz start factoring in at first base a little bit because Jose Martinez looks like he's still going to need some work to play first base? I mean, there's some other things that this could lead to, but having a Yoshi Tsutsugo be able to play left field and third base without any concern is a huge benefit for them sorting this out. And it probably prevents them from needing an extra infielder, right? You know, beyond, you know, if, let's say Joey Wendell becomes the utility infielder, then they wouldn't need a second one. They wouldn't need a, another complement. Yeah, and, and that's you know going to be a very interesting decision, maybe one of the most interesting to me, just because we know how much the Rays value pitching and defense. And we've seen a guy like Daniel Robertson, who is a elite-level defender in the infield, and what he can mean late in the game. And, you know, if you go around, and, you know, G-Man Choi had a good year at first base last year. Brandon Lau, until he got hurt, was pretty good at second. William Damas was great at short. Third base, we understand, as we just talked about, isn't necessarily locked down with two defensively strong people. So you think having another... Uh, in, middle infielder type, especially a right-handed hitter to complement Joy Wendell would be a good fit, but I don't think that's necessarily how it's going to play out. Mike Brossow would be another option who can also bring the added option to play the outfield. Right now, they've got more outfielders than you guys have broadcasters. Whew, and that's a lot of guys. Mark, uh, we're going to follow that as well, and we certainly appreciate some time in the latest podcast. Anytime, Neil. It's always the highlight of the week, month, year, whatever. Whenever you need it, it's here. That is the always entertaining Mark Topkin of the Tampa Bay Times, and we certainly appreciate his time. We've got another Mark now with us to talk defense. We did a lot on the race defensively on our last Countdown to Opening Day show with Willie Adamas and Rodney Linares, so I thought this kind of fit perfectly with our next guest. Mark Simon is a guy um, who we have referenced on our broadcast plenty. Uh, he, along with John Dewan and uh, Brian Reef, have written a great book called Fielding Bible 5. Uh, the stats defensive run saved have kind of been improved, and uh, the, the book explains that, and uh, Mark, who also is with Sports Info Solutions, will explain it as well, and he now joins us. Mark, thanks very much for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. Mark, give me an idea of how the, the metric has changed, and maybe in terms of defensive runs saved, how the new metric is going to better enable fans or teams, etc., to really track how good a player is actually defensively. So I think this is of significant importance to raise fans because of the way that the team plays. The, the issue that uh, some of the defensive metrics had 
in the past was with defensive shifting, uh, which was something that wasn't part of the game when this statistic was introduced. So we used to combine essentially a player's range and positioning together. Now we've separated them. And what that means is uh, when a fielder is playing shortstop and then gets put behind second base, we were um, in the past treating him as if he was playing the normal shortstop position. We're not doing that anymore. We're now treating him as if he's playing right up the middle. And that allows us to have a more complete version of the statistic. For example, with the Rays, if you think about how often they were shifting last year, we were leaving out a lot of those plays for like how Willie Adamas was measured maybe 40% of the ground balls that he was seeing weren't necessarily being uh, calculated. Now with this new system, uh, we've got that covered uh, and we can tell you, okay, Willie Adamas, as, as, as the system uh, turned out to portray, uh, pretty good uh, and, and does fairly well. So I think that's the big improvement. We've been able to separate positioning from performance and within performance, we can tell you A, does the guy get to balls? And B, does the guy throw balls well uh, from wherever he's making the throw from? So that said, Mark, how are the Rays, let's say, seen as a team before the metric changed? And now how are they viewed? Do they grade out as a better team on the defensive side? Well, I I think, uh, and it's this is somewhat specific to Adamas, uh, that you see some improvements in some, uh, in some spots. Uh, and... Well, there's two. There's essentially two answers to that question. Uh, the first one is when you look at like an individual player, like Adamas, who now finishes with 12 runs saved at the shortstop position, which puts him in not necessarily the top tier with Baez and with Andrelton Simmons over a full season, but puts him in a pretty good spot. The other thing that we learned from doing what we did is we learn which teams are good at putting guys in the right spots and which teams are not good at putting teams in the right spots. And the Rays rated terrific in terms of their infield positioning. Uh, And I think that's a credit to Rodney Linares uh, and the analytics department with the team for putting a system together uh, that allows them to take advantage of what they have. Now, I mentioned Adamas. They're a little weak at other spots, as I think, you would acknowledge with uh, at first base Choi and third base uh, Diaz last year, but uh, I think you want your best guy to be your shortstop to be pretty good, uh, and he was. And again, the positioning thing is important because how often they shift and how I guess funky their shifts are too, because they're constantly switching them up uh, in in mid batter. They are, and I would assume no matter what system you're using and what metric, Kevin Kiermaier has to grade out as one of the premier defenders in the game. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so the system the, the system upgrades didn't touch outfield too much, maybe a little bit. Uh but Kiermaier, yes, he's still he's still the the, <laughs> the he's the all-time leader in defensive runs saved in center field for a stat that now is uh, what, 17 years old, 18 years old. Uh he's among the leaders in sliding, diving and jumping catches, which you would expect the leave your feet kind of plays. Uh, and he still gets to balls. He's maybe a step down from what he was at his peak, and I think that's to be expected given the the battery of, of wear and tear that he's had to take over the last few years. But yeah, uh, Kevin Kiermaier still grades out very, very well. Well, with the additions they've made recently, acquiring Hunter Renfro, who was right at the top in terms of defensive range save for outfielders 
last year, and Manuel Margot, who also has been very good defensively. How much do you think this maybe helps the race going forward in terms of what you can project for Tampa Bay on the defensive side in 2020? Boy, the outfield should be good. Uh, The outfield should be very, very good. Um, I think that people don't realize that Hunter Renfro uh, was an excellent defensive outfielder last year. In our system, he had 23 defensive runs saved, which ranked uh, tied for second behind Victor Robles, and he was tied with Cody Bellinger. Now, that was accumulated at the corners. That wasn't accumulated in center, where you would figure that a a top-notch defensive player would be, uh, maybe a little of it in center field, but most of it in left and right. And it's a combination of both arm and the fact that he's able to get to the ball wherever it's hit. Now, that could be he could be positioned well for that, but he's able to get to the ball. Uh, so that's a nice get. Manny Margot is very good at getting to the ball. He's not necessarily good at throwing the ball. And I think that's something you're going to have to watch uh, over the course of the year. But I look at what they did with Abasil Garcia last year uh, and the improvements that they made to his game, and I would feel good uh, anytime that he's in the outfield too. When you put Margot and Kiermaier out there together, and you put Renfro in the other spot, that's going to take away a lot of extra base hits. And generally, in part because of KK, the Rays have been among the top 10 defensive teams in the league. I would think with the additions they've made, they'd be projected there this year, yes? Yeah, I would think so. Uh, we're actually we're working on defensive projections as we speak. Uh, in four of the last five years, uh, they were uh, top five in the outfield, and in all of the last five years, they were top ten overall. Uh, last year, they had the seventh highest defensive run save total in baseball. Now, I, I do want to say, like, what does that mean? Okay, a hitter drives in a hundred runs, a team saves fifty. Is there equal weight to that? It, it's I don't know that I would necessarily say that because our runs saved are like theoretical. Uh, Like if you rob a grand slam, you're not getting four runs saved for that home run robbery. Uh, But in theory, it should work out. And if you look at the ranks and you look at the top defensive teams in the majors last year, the playoff teams were at the top, the Astros, the Dodgers, uh, the Diamondbacks were in the hunt for a while. The very good teams for the most part, tend to be the teams that that are very good defensively. And it's very difficult to get to a World Series or win a World Series if you're a bottom-tier defensive team. I don't think there's any question about that. In the segment you did on the Rays, you know, I didn't see this there. But at second base, I really thought Brandon Lau was pretty good defensively before injury last season. And I thought Joey Wendell, who missed a lot of time this past year with injuries, also was exceptional defensively in 2018. So that said, based on what we've talked about so far, I think that the Rays up the middle project to be pretty strong. Yeah, uh, Low graded, graded out with two defensive runs saved last year in 555 innings. So that's over a full season. That's a slightly above average defensive player. Wendell in the past has graded out as very above average, and he showed four defensive runs saved last season at second base in part-time play. I think the bonus with him is his versatility, right? He can play all over the field, and he's essentially... He's he's taking up two roster spots as one roster spot because he's so good and so versatile. I remember I, I talked to him and I, I talked to some people about him a couple of years ago, and his ability to make the really challenging play uh, is something that's very impressive to me. And I think there's one where you have 
real run saved and theoretical run saved. I think Joey Wendell is probably like a five to 10 theoretical run save player, but if he's making big plays with guys on second and third and a key spot in the eighth inning against the Yankees and making a leaping catch that wins the game for you, uh, I, I think there's a little extra value that he brings. Well said, Mark. You uh, you gave me a copy of Fielding Bible 5. For our podcast listeners, if they're looking for more info and want to dive into the numbers and get the book, where can they go? So this is a book that I think offers something for everyone. We have 30 different uh, team essays. We have a look at uh, Matt Chapman versus Nolan Arenado and who the best shortstop in baseball are, is, uh, and a number of uh, other studies that we did. But you don't need necessarily a mathematical degree to understand it. I think you will you will grasp the book pretty well. You can get it at actasports.com, A-C-T-A sports.com. You can also, if you want to learn more about our stats, go to fieldingbible.com. Uh, and check it out. The stats are also going to be updated. They are updated at Fangraphs. They should be updated soon at BaseballReference.com, where you find defensive runs saved. Really good stuff from one Mark Simon. Again, the book is Fielding Bible 5 with Mark, John Dewan, and uh, Brian Reef. And uh, again, a book you should check out. Now, one player we mentioned in our discussion was one Joey Wendell, but I wanted to touch base with Joey about the offensive side of the baseball this week. The reason being is that Joey made some changes in his swing in the offseason. Chad Matola, in fact, mentioned it on one of our weekend broadcasts. So I asked Joey what the changes are designed to do. Kind of what I focused on this offseason and um, into spring training was um, just kind of a, a hinge with my body um, and, and creating that hinge at my hips as opposed to uh, with my legs or with my upper body. So uh, it's something that's kind of still a, a work in progress, but I think uh, the result will be, um, you know, the, the, the swing plane will be a little bit more conducive to elevating the balls and, and driving the balls as opposed to um, hitting low line drives and ground balls. Um, that's certainly still, uh, you know, a part of my game and something I don't want to lose, but I feel like um, I have a little more in the tank in terms of, um, you know, maybe being a little more gap to gap and, and uh, you know, driving the ball a little bit more frequently than I had in the past. So where were, is there anything that you're doing either, you've mentioned your hip as a hinge, is there anything you've done with your hands or your setup that's a little different than in the past? I, I didn't get to... Yeah, it, n- nothing nothing too drastic. I mean, there are, there are things that I'm tinkering with a little bit here and there, um, kind of see what... What feels a little bit better? What feels a little bit more powerful? Um, you know, we, we've kind of been messing around with with some technology, and um, I put the um, it's called a blast motion sensor on the on the end of my bat, and that's um, giving me a little bit of feedback. Um, so that if you know, say for example, if I if I'm using two separate cues, um, or if I'm trying two separate things, I can kind of take a look at the results and see um, you know which ones were a little bit more. Um, you know, which ones are more in the ranges that I'm looking for in, t- in terms of, uh, you know, angles and velocities and stuff like that. So, you know, nothing, none of that is um, an end-all and be-all, but it can be a good reference point um, when you're working on a couple different things. And that is uh, Joey Wendell. Hopefully that gives you an idea of what to look for when he's at the plate. So far I can tell you this, the quality of Joey's at-bats have been very, very good this spring. 
Let's move from there to the mound. Uh, the Rays getting Brady McKay back. He'll pitch in his first game on Friday. Hopefully Blake Snell throwing a bullpen on Friday as well. Because of Snell's injury, Josh Fleming, uh, a former fifth-round pick of the Rays out of Little Webster University in Missouri, got a chance to start on Tuesday against Atlanta and threw very well. He threw a, a couple of scoreless innings, and I had a chance to talk to Josh before that. I asked Josh about this camp and uh, what it meant to be going to his first camp at the big league level. They've been great. Um, you know, the big difference is just obviously the, the, the guys that are here have been here for, for a while, the veteran players and stuff. They've been awesome to me, you know, very welcoming. Um, and they talk to me every day and stuff. Um, just really, really relaxed. You know, I came in and felt really comfortable right away, so it's nice. You have a lot of lefties here, Ryan Yarbrough, Blake Snell. I, I can go on. A lot of them very different. Are there any in particular that you've kind of talked to more than others? Um, I'd say the the one that I've mostly talked to is Blake Snell. Um, we're in the same group, uh, throwing group, you know, when we do PFPs and everything. So I'm around him a lot. Um, so constantly talking to him every day and, and learning a lot from him. What are the types of things you're learning? Is it more about routine or is it more also about he might see something with a bullpen or something of that nature? Um, I think it's more routine and just... You know, like without asking him too many questions, you know, just from watching him, I'm learning, you know, how he carries himself around, you know, whether it's fans, other players and stuff. Um, you know, he's very professional and everything, and so it's it's fun to watch, and uh, it's really cool to be around. What were the nerves like in your first professional outing in a spring training game? I know it's just spring training game, but I would also imagine there was some nerves. Yeah, I mean, when I heard my name was, you know, called to go into the next inning, um, Obviously, I got a little bit nervous, but uh, you know, once I got on the mound and was warming up and everything, everything just kind of calmed down and just felt like an, another game to me. Um, so when I was running out to the mound, I threw my first few pitches, and I was like, you know, I'm good. Like, I was, I was ready to go. No, no nerves at all, really. Your reputation is you're a pitch-to-contact guy generally who gets a lot of soft contact, kind of like a Ryan Yarbrough. And do you see yourself that way? Is that is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, my... My mentality, my game plan every every day is, you know, attack the zone and, and you know, just throw a lot of strikes and let, let the other team put the ball in play because, you know, I know defense behind me is going to make the play. So, um, you know, I definitely definitely think going into every game, just just keep pounding the strike zone. And if, if they put the ball in play, I know the team behind me is going to make the play. What are the pitches that you currently throw? And are there any that you're – emphasizing or working on more than others this spring so i have a i have a sinker change up a cutter and a curveball um this this whole off season everything been working on the cutter um that's something they emphasize to me um that they want me to work on and really try and make you know a really good secondary pitch for me um and so the cutter is something that I've been really working hard on um, most of the time I'm here. Is it more to get in on righties or to have something that you can break off against the lefty or a combination? I think it's a combination of both. Um, you know, be able to throw it into righties and, and get in on the hands and maybe break a bat or two. And then to lefties, start it start you know over the plate and have it break off, um, get, get some swing and misses. So you know, I think they want me to work on both attacking right-handers and left-handers with it. And I'm guessing it can play well off the change it because they go in opposite directions. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the way way the sinker moves, the way the changeup plays off of that, um, you know, they said the cutter would be a really good complement to that. And so just really working hard on getting that thing as perfected as I can.
The context of being in a camp for you, does it mean any more based on your journey, based on how you've come through than most? Um, I mean, yeah, I think so. Um, you know, obviously coming from a, a D3 school, um, it's it's tough to, to get to a big league camp. Um, you know, I've been working hard at it, you know, my whole career and everything, and that's something that I've been striving for since I've been drafted. And so, you know, to, to be invited to this and be here, it's it's pretty surreal. It's really cool. And not having seen you before this season, really, have you added, did you add weight in the offseason? Did you improve, like, lower half? What were the areas that you worked on this offseason? Um, worked on lower half a lot. Um, I know they want me to be around the 215 range, so I'm trying to stick around that. Um, I think now I'm around 220, which is fine. You know, going into season, you're going to lose some of that weight anyway because of the, the travel and stuff. So, uh, you know, I think where I'm at now is a pretty good spot. And is 215 higher than you were previous years, or is that pretty similar? It, it's pretty similar, yeah. I've been I've been floating in between 210 and 220 probably for the last couple of years. So Good stuff from uh, one Josh Fleming. Uh, I'm not sure when, but I certainly think he is in the plans, at least hearing Kevin Cash speak glowingly about him and compare, comparing him to like a Ryan Yarbrough. Um, I think that you're going to see Josh Fleming at some point in time. Now, he's a raised draft pick. Um, there are some other uh, non-roster guys in camp who are not, who also may have an impact on the race this season. I, I think one of those is John Curtis. Um, he is a fastball. It's got up to 97. Uh, Kyle Snyder pointed him out uh, the other day about the way he was throwing the baseball. He's got a really good slider. Um, and I asked John uh, about how he ended up with Tampa Bay this year. This free agency was pretty stressful for me. I didn't have a particularly good year last year, and uh, I was supposed to go after I got released last July to the Dominican, and that kind of fell through. Um, And so I was throwing for scouts in September and October, and then I shut down for a month, started throwing pins again in December, came into the new year and still didn't have any jobs but uh job offers but i had a lot of teams that said they were you know interested whatever that means and uh so i had a workout like january 8th in front of about 13 teams and the rays were one of them and i got a lot of good feedback from a lot of teams but nothing really concrete and then the rays were the first team that actually offered me a minor league contract and an invite to camp and i was excited they said that they had you know had eyes on me for a while from when i was with the twins and um, I pretty much gave my agent about a week to see, you know, if anybody else wanted to make an offer. If not, I was really excited to go ahead and go with Rays. And so a week passed, and uh, I, I t- kind of told him to put out an ultimatum. And a, nobody else really wanted to offer me a non-roster invite. They just wanted to offer him, me a minor league deal. And so I, I was tired of waiting. I just wanted to go ahead and go to the team that wanted me. Beyond that, how much of the fact that they have a reputation with pitchers attracted you? A lot. I, I spoke to uh, Kyle, um, I think, maybe a day or two after they offered me the contract, and uh, I was honestly blown away. I mean, I remember I, I spoke to him just for like 15 minutes, and I expected, uh, since they have you know kind of an analytical reputation, to hear bunch of number talk or whatever but he's so smart and knowledgeable that he communicates directly and simply and it's kind of that you know best of both worlds where the old school and the new school collide and uh after talking to him i was i was pretty much immediately sold i mean i waited just a couple days just to you know see because you know you never know what happens with free agency and i was letting my agent do that side of it but 
after I talked to Kyle, I was like, I'd be happy as could be here, and I am so far. How do you see yourself uh, as a pitcher, and how do you hope that being in this organization will help you grow and improve your your stuff and the use of it? So far, I think I've had um, sparks where I've been really good, but I think one of the things that I'm looking forward to this year is trying to be really more consistent. And so um, what I'm excited about here is just really buying into the process and developing and becoming a better version of myself every day and letting kind of the extraneous noise of being you know an in-between triple-a and big league player um get in the way of really just producing the most that i can and so i just really want to use this year to learn as much as i can and to get as you know improve as much as i can and let the rest of it take care of itself what what are your for fans who haven't seen what do you throw and are there pitches that you're kind of evolving in camp this uh this year yeah so uh I've always thrown fastball slider. That's always just been my kind of one-two. And uh, this year, one of the main things I did when I was trying to get signed is I added a curveball. And actually, you know, I've been working with Kyle and uh, the staff here pretty heavily the past couple weeks to really try to improve my curveball to where maybe that'll take over the place of my slider as my primary breaking ball. And then also, uh, like, actually legitimately trying to throw a changeup and saying Instead of saying, like, I'm working on a changeup, but it's just token, like, I've actually been trying to develop a major league quality changeup. So we'll see. <laughs> Chatting with you here, you know, I, I know that you had a reputation for being an incredibly bright, intelligent individual. How does it work as an advantage, and how also can that work as a, a detriment, too? Well, I would say that there are a lot more bright individuals here in this organization, but uh, I don't know. It's important to try to learn and it's important to try to be the best you can be by gathering the information and sorting it and then it it can be um a disadvantage if you try to do too much i've had times in the past where maybe i've been too coachable or i've been too willing to try to fix something that wasn't necessarily wrong and so there definitely is an aspect of when you're on the mound you want to just shut it off and compete you you don't think about anything else besides that mitt taking a deep breath and competing. The batter doesn't matter. The scouting report doesn't matter. None of that matters when you're lifting your leg up and you're just delivering the ball with full intent. And so you kind of have to balance the preparation of beforehand information gathering and then the end game competing, you know, just being as competitive as you can. You talked about being process-oriented. I think it's probably also important not to be so baseball focused away from the field that it consumes you i know you also have a lot of side interests i saw you had your guitar the other day yeah i I like to play guitar i I read less than i should and more than i used to i read a lot in college since i was an english and history major and then i also like to write a little bit mostly songs but i would say yeah most of my free time goes to the guitar so if there were uh, I, i know you're as a songwriter too is there a song that do you write about yourself? Do you write about that experience? And is there a, a favorite song that you have out there that you've done, either yourself or a cover? Uh, no, I, I don't <laughs> write too much about myself. I just, um, you know, I'm from Texas, and so there's a pretty heavy singer-songwriter tradition there from, you know, the old-school greats like Willie and from the new-school guys like John Bowman and William Clark Green, a lot of guys who write songs that get played on country radio people might not necessarily know that they weren't written by the person who's singing it but um as far as songs i, I write that i like it always seems like it's the the last one because 
I get a little bit better and then I start writing better songs and then I don't really like the ones I did before. So whatever the most recent one is is usually what I like the most. And your influences in terms of your music, what do you like to – what's what's the sound? Uh, man, pretty much anything bluesy, Americana, Stevie Ray Vaughan, Jason, Jason Isbell, a little bit of folk, a little bit of, you know, early rock, um, and then a lot of Texas country. So that kind of Americana 92.1 KMBT sound in New Braunfels, that's not necessarily, you know, what country radio might be be imagined to sound like but if you imagine what country would have evolved into with more blues and rock influence instead of uh pop and hip-hop that's kind of what i listen to good chat with john curtis and certainly appreciate his time on our podcast as well as that of one mark topkin uh mark simon of sports info solutions uh, joey wendell and also josh fleming uh don't forget that you can always check out our coverage of the rays uh, follow me on Twitter at Neil Solons, follow at Rays Radio, and check out our blog. It's RaysRadio.mlblogs.com. This weekend on our Countdown to Opening Day show, which will precede our broadcast Saturday and Sunday, Kevin Kiermeyer and bench coach Matt Quattrero. So join us for that. Just a reminder, you do have to swing your clocks ahead for this weekend, and hopefully the Rays are swinging well at the plate over the weekend. Follow our coverage all weekend long. Thanks very much for being with us. And we will talk with you soon.